Well, good morning on this uh, rainy and cloudy Sunday morning. It's, uh, thankful for just the other believers and saints and those who have gone before us who have written songs and lyrics that encourage, they edify, at times they rebuke, as uh, they remind us and point us uh, to our Lord and to our King. And uh, there's a lot in the songs we sang this morning that if you pay attention, you will note some of the connections to our text this morning as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And you can go ahead and turn there to chapter 9 in Matthew. As we pick up where we left off in verse 18, as you're turning there, I want to make an observation. This may be revelatory to most of you. Life is hard. You know, it's, uh, it doesn't even take someone who's lived long to identify this. More than one of my children have at times said, life is just hard. And they're picking up quite early on. And, you know, there's a part of me as a parent that says, and wants to protect them from what they don't even know yet about how hard life really is. So the reason that since sin entered the world, man has been looking for rest. You may remember uh, the genealogies, and as it nears the end of the genealogical list in Genesis chapter 5, it gets, leads up to Noah, and right before Noah, you get to his father, Lamech. And as Noah's about to be born, Lamech says, maybe it is this one who will give us rest. They've been longing for rest, for the one who would bring rest ever since sin entered the world. Hasn't changed. We still long for rest. We long for an ease from the difficulties and difficult circumstances of life, whether it's situations, whether it's sickness, whether it's affliction, whatever it may be, life is hard. As we turn to our text this morning, as we begin to look at our text, there's couple of things we're going to observe. One is we're going to see that this is not an experience that's isolated to us. We've already alluded to that. It's an experience that many have had through the years. We're going to watch how Jesus responds to those who are struggling in this life, who are longing for rest from affliction, from pain, from suffering. But then in the midst of this, we're going to be reminded of the King who gives rest. And it's a hope, it's the comfort, and it's the promise of what that coming kingdom and reign of that king will bring to us. So if you haven't already turned there, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 9, beginning in verse 18. And we read that while he, that is Jesus, was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came. He bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up, began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once... The woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. 
And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. Pray with me. Father, we come this morning, as we've already sung, desiring to just quiet our hearts from just living in this world, in this world that is affected by sin, and sometimes we feel it more acutely than others. Father, I know there's many here, many who aren't here this morning because of the difficulties of life, whether it be sickness, whether it be pain, whether it be different things that occupy us. Father, I pray for those in this body who are hurting, who are sick, that you will just encourage them, allow them to take heart. May your word continue to be a source of comfort and solace in the midst of a difficult and sin-cursed world. And may we find hope as we study the person in the nature of Jesus Christ. So we look to the King, the one who reverses the curse of sin and death. In your name, amen. It's important to note in this text as we get into the preceding text or the context that we've been looking at. Jesus had concluded his response to some of John's former disciples. It was not all of them. It was a small group of his disciples, of John's disciples, who came to him questioning him and his methods and his ministry. Jesus has finished addressing them and concluded with the foreshadowing of the new covenant and the ministry of Jesus which fulfills the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Not a doing away, not abolishing, not a removing of the old, but a fulfilling of the old. And it's in this presentation of Jesus as the promised Messiah and King that Matthew has shown Jesus over the past few chapters as the one who overturns sickness, who reverses disease, capable of controlling creation by the word of his mouth and the word of his power. And now to hammer home the messianic ministry, the authority of Jesus, the fulfilling of the old and the new, Matthew presents him as having the power over death itself. Now what's a little bit unique about this miracle story is that it gets interrupted. And it gets interrupted when a second miracle takes place while traveling to the home of this young girl whom he raises from the dead, as we've already read this morning. And, and as we continue to set the scene, there's a few important items to note about these events, some of which we learn from Mark and Luke. Mark and Luke provide a lot more detail about these events, but Matthew, again, he's honing in. His emphasis is Jesus as king as sovereign, as the one who overturns sin, sickness, disease, and death. And so he's necessarily abrupt, and yet it doesn't hurt us to understand a little bit more of the context that was going on. Both Mark and Luke identify that this official is actually the chief synagogue official in Capernaum named Jairus. In addition, we learn that Jairus's daughter is only 12 years old, according to Luke, She's an only daughter. In fact, it may be that she was the only child, not just the only daughter. And Mark's appeal, or the additional words he describes from Jairus' interaction with Jesus and the appeal he presents is that emotional appeal of a father. As Jairus says, please come help my little girl. It's 
term of endearment, it's a term of love, it's a term of desperation of a hurting father. In verse 18 of Matthew, Jairus comes up to Jesus as he was in the midst of teaching and interacting with the crowds. Shortly after having concluded his response to that group of Johannine disciples, and as we'll note in a moment, this timing is not incidental. It's not accidental. We readily acknowledge that. We understand God is sovereign. We understand he controls events. We understand he controls time. But do we stop and pay attention to how specific that is? Nothing ever happens too early or too late in God's timing. God sovereignly orchestrated these events and this timing to demonstrate the authority and power of Christ on the heels of Jesus' implication concerning the new covenant that we looked at last week and the hope and the promise that is fulfilled in the new covenant. So verses 18 to 19, Jairus pleads and Jesus agrees to come and heal his daughter. Not even by word, he just immediately gets up. You'll notice that when Jairus comes, compared to the Pharisees and their combative and subversive attitude toward Jesus, or even the questioning of John's disciples, Jairus demonstrates a humility by bowing down before Jesus as he entreats him. In fact, that attitude is very similar to the leper that we saw in chapter 8. There's actually a lot of similarities between the leper and that whole situation in this one. You may not recognize it at first, but if we stop and think and slow down, it becomes rather obvious. You see, the leper is considered ceremonially unclean, and to touch him or even being within too close of a proximity risked becoming unclean. With Jairus, according to the Old Testament law, the dead body of his daughter was likewise unclean. And yet Jairus asked for Jesus to lay his hand upon her. Jesus had already demonstrated his authority and divinity with the leper in the same way, where instead of just speaking and healing him, which he absolutely could have done, he reached out and touched the leper, showing that rather than being made unclean, Jesus, the Messiah, is able to make clean that which would normally cause defilement. He is more powerful, able to overturn the defiling influences of this world. He is not affected, but rather affects those things. So how does Jesus respond to this unorthodox request by Jairus to come and touch a dead body? Well, verse 19 says, he arose. Now there's an interesting play here as we see Jesus arise in order to raise the girl from the dead. In fact, Matthew uses the same word to describe both of these events and that wordplay simply demonstrates the care and the picturesque description Matthew is painting of these events and emphasizing this power of Jesus. Matthew then records that the disciples rose and they went to follow Jesus. I mean, they had heard the plea. They heard what Jairus had requested. They wanted to see if he's going to do it. And we don't know how many of the disciples, we don't know how many initially set out. We know from Mark and Luke that it was quite a crowd that was hovering around Jesus and it was bustling and people were pressing in as he was making his way to Jairus' home. We do know that by the time he arrived and when he performed the healing, it was only Peter, James, and John who were allowed to be in the room with him and the parents when Jesus raised the girl, according to Mark and Luke. 
But before going any further, I want you to notice once again something about Jesus and his character. And that's the compassion and care that the creator of the universe has. He could have healed from a distance. We know he could have just spoken and done it as the centurion had requested of his servant. He also could have ignored the plea, having a large crowd that needed discipling, that needed teaching, that needed to be instructed, that needed to be rebuked. But he didn't. Instead, he immediately responded to the entreating cries of a grieving father. It highlights, once again, the compassion, the care, and the gentleness of our Savior. And this is to demonstrate not only the power and authority of Jesus' messianic ministry, but this is a demonstration of the character of God himself. Too often persons mischaracterize God by talking and referring to the Old Testament, but it becomes confirmation bias. They simply go to those passages that show the justice and wrath of God, which exists, and that is absolutely true. Ignoring the compassion, the care, the gentleness, the patience, the endurance of God. In John 14, in fact, you can go and turn there if you'd like, Philip, who was one of the disciples, he made an interesting request. In verse 8 of John 14, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. That's all, right? Just show us God, and we're good. That was something even Moses was not allowed. And he says that'll be enough. Enough for what? Enough to give me assurance. Enough to comfort me. Perhaps Philip was alluding to the Mount of Transfiguration, was a bit sullen that he and the others had not been able to see the glorifying of Jesus and the transformation, transfiguration that had taken place. But whatever the case, Philip makes a request to see God. Now look how Jesus responds. In verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. This is a helpful reminder that everything we see in the character of Jesus the Messiah is a demonstration of the character of God the Father. These are not two different persons. They are not split personalities. It is the same. They're not two characters of God. All the compassion, the mercy, the tenderness, the gentleness, and the care we see in Jesus is simply a reflection of the Father. Now Matthew is abrupt here in what takes place. His focus here is on showcasing Jesus' ministry, his kingship, and his authority. He, he doesn't elaborate further. He doesn't provide nearly as many details as Luke and Mark. And yet what happens next is completely unexpected. Whether you read the shorter account of Matthew or the longer accounts of Mark and Luke, what takes place was not expected. Seemingly out of nowhere appears this woman 
looking to obtain healing simply by touching the hem or the tassels of Jesus' cloak. In Mark and Luke, we see the crowd that was following Jesus, probably the same crowd, including some of those Pharisees and Johannine disciples who had been questioning him and accusing him. But as they're pressing in, as they're jostling around, Jesus felt the woman touch the cloak of his garment. Now, he doesn't have a sense, he doesn't feel via his garment, but he felt the power flow out of him. Now, someone can't steal the power of Jesus or the healing. He knew this woman. He knew she was there. He knew what he was doing. He actively healed her at that moment. He also knew that God had been preparing her for this moment. This woman had been suffering from what was likely a heavy and constant, nonstop menstrual cycle for 12 years. And there's a couple of important things to note here that you need to understand what this impact, what this affliction meant to her. First, it had consumed the woman's life for the past 12 years, and it consumed every bit of her livelihood. According to Mark, she had spent every bit of her money. She had nothing left. She was destitute. Everything she had to try and cure herself of this bleeding with doctors to no avail, no help, no change whatsoever. She had gone as far as man and man's wisdom could take and there was no solution. And the reason this was so severe is that this bleeding meant that she was perpetually unclean from a ritual sense. As such, she was forbidden from being a part of the community. She was forbidden from living in the community. She was a virtual leper. She wasn't allowed anywhere near the people in the city. She was continually unclean. She had done all she could to rectify this and had found no healing at the hands of human doctors. Now, how long had this been going on? The text tells us it's been 12 years. Let me ask you another question. How old is Jairus' daughter? She's 12 years old. Notice that in the sovereign hand of God, in orchestrating these events, this dual set of miracles had been set in motion 12 years earlier with the birth of a girl and the affliction of this woman. This is no accident. These two persons would experience the gracious healing of God, be a testimony to the power of God, and it would lead to their salvation. As painful as this affliction was, as ostracized as this woman felt, as real as the grief and the daily struggle was, 12 years did not begin to compare with eternity. Not only did God use this woman to demonstrate his power of healing, but also to bring her to salvation, to a recognition of Jesus as Messiah. the place of desperation where she had to put all of her hope in Jesus. And that she knew that he was the Messiah, the Savior, is clear from her expectation of healing and the fact that she believed all she had to do was touch the hem of his garments. In fact, in verses 21 and 22, we observe again that close connection between physical sickness and death and spiritual life and salvation. The expression used by the woman when she said, I will get well, or that hope to get well, is literally, then I will be saved. 
Now, she's focused on the physical healing. There's no doubt about that. But her faith is in the right person to affect this healing. And what she receives is not merely physical healing, but spiritual healing. As Jesus had said to the paralytic, take courage, my son. So Jesus now says to this woman, take courage, my daughter. Jesus is not bothered. He's not put out. He demonstrates care and compassion for this woman and her suffering and demonstrates the nature of their relationship. She is a daughter of the king. Jesus highlights that like the paralytic, it is the woman's faith that has made her well. She has looked to Jesus as the Savior and he has healed her. Her faith was in the power of the Messiah, the only one who could affect this change. She rightly recognized who he was, and as a result, that he could save her from her earthly affliction. However, the faith in Jesus as Messiah had a value that far surpassed her physical healing and extended to her eternal well-being. And yet Jesus uses the physical healing to demonstrate his kingdom power to all that are around, to the witnesses. Remember, she had snuck up behind him and just touched the hem of his garment. He could have let that go. He drew this woman who had been ostracized on the fringe of society and brought her into the spotlight to highlight her faith, to highlight that she is a daughter of the king, to give her a place of prominence once again in the society. And he used this to point to the coming kingdom where all sickness, death, and disease ends. Matthew notes that it was at the once the woman was made well or was saved. The text more literally translates, from that hour she was saved. Yes, it was instant, but it's more than just that it was instant. It was permanent. This was no magic trick. This was no illusion. This was no rush of adrenaline. This was permanent full, complete healing that lasted for the rest of that woman's life from that moment on. Now, having healed this woman, Matthew abruptly transitions back to Jesus' original mission, Jairus' daughter. And Matthew takes us right to the doorstep of Jairus' home. Excavations in Capernaum have identified a large synagogue there that likely existed. In fact, what they initially excavated was on top of another one. It's likely the one that existed in first century Israel at the time of Christ. And attached to that synagogue is the equivalent of a parsonage. This or a similar house may have been the location of Jairus' house as he served as the chief synagogue official. So Jesus now arrives and the flute players and the crowd were in full mourning ritual. It's recorded that even the poorest Jewish family was expected to hire not less than two pipers and one wailing woman for this morning rite. Now, Jairus was not a poor family, so they had quite the crowd gathered for the purpose of mourning the passing of his much beloved and only daughter. Now, how does Jesus respond upon seeing this crowd? He tells them to leave. And the reason he gives is the girl has not died, but is asleep. This elicits jeering laughter from the disorderly crowd. These professional mourners, 
you got to assume if they were hired to professionally mourn death, they were very familiar with what? Death. They knew what death looked like. They knew what death felt like. They knew what it was like when someone stops breathing and is not alive. And so they respond with amusement and laughter at Jesus. This laughter, as Matthew inserts it, is an emphasis to show that they know the girl is not alive. She is no longer breathing. But before I go further, we need to stop and ask for a moment and think critically about what Jesus has just said. He said, she is not dead, she is asleep. Is Jesus saying she's still alive and merely sleeping? This is important. Is that what he is saying? Because if that's what he is saying, if he's saying they've misdiagnosed what's going on and the girl is perfectly fine, then what takes place next is not a miracle. No more than shaking someone awake from a nap would be considered a miracle. In fact, by that measurement, all of my children are miracle workers. But if you agree that Jesus did work a miracle, then there must be more to what Jesus is saying than she is napping. There has to be something that both acknowledges the death of the daughter and this term sleep that Jesus is using. So what is it? Well, turn, if you would, to John 11. If you recall, Jesus used this same language to refer to his dear friend, Lazarus. In John 11, beginning of verse 11, we read this he said after that, that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. This sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. This is almost the jeering of the crowd. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. You see how he's connected this term sleep with death. So what is he doing? And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. This death is real. In fact, if you continue looking down in verse 35, what do you find Jesus doing over the death that he's referred to as sleep of Lazarus? It says he weeps. He is weeping over him. Now, if Jesus has said he's only sleeping, if Jesus said I am going to raise him, why is he weeping? Well, Jesus still exhibited feelings and emotion over death because death is the consequence of sin. It's separation. We were not created to die. Death is a consequence of the fall, and Jesus mourns this with great weeping. He weeps over seeing the effect of the curse. He weeps at the unbelief. But now, seeing that Jesus uses the term sleep to refer to death, what is the difference between the death he describes and the death that the noisy crowd and mourners are describing? They're now, we've identified that Jesus still meant death, but he means something different than the death that the mourners are describing. Well, the answer, I believe, is twofold. And there's two observations. First, it's very much a matter of perspective. 
For Jesus, raising one from the dead really is no more difficult than rousing someone from a daytime nap. In other words, death does not have the same power. It is materially different for you than it is for me. But I think it's more than that. I think there's a theological lesson imbued here as well. Not only was death no difficulty for Jesus, it was certainly a sad reality of sin, but it was not insurmountable. But secondly, Jesus here overturns any belief in annihilationism. That is the idea that a person ceases to exist when they die in this life. As one commentator notes, Jesus is drawing a thought-provoking parallel between death and literal sleep. If death is sleep, then it allows the possibility of waking up. Death is not the end. And in the case of the girl, it will prove to be only a temporary experience even in this life. Her death is real, but it is not final, just as the death of Lazarus was real but not final. And of course, what happens here in this story is not only the resuscitation of someone who will later die again, but that is what takes place. It's merely the postponement of death, and yet he still used the term sleep to describe that death. It's by comparing death to sleep and creating this metaphor that we see highlighted the reality that those who die will all awake to future life. By moving death from a finality of annihilationism to the metaphor of sleep, he reminds us implicitly that death is not the end. Everyone will awake to a future life. Everyone. Jesus is highlighting that death is not this end. She is, she is dead, but she has not ceased to exist. It's not the end of a person, and in this case, she will be woken again to life under the sun, to complete her years on the earth. But all who die will awaken to life after the sun. To a life other than the life on this earth to either eternal joy in the presence of God, living as citizens of the kingdom, or to eternal torment, separated from God, enduring the just punishment for sin. And what is it that determines the destiny to which we awake? The answer is what you believe about Jesus Christ. The one who highlights this metaphor of sleep and reminds us that death is not the end. Do you believe, like the hemorrhaging woman, that he is the Messiah, the one who has the power to save both the body and the soul? Any other belief in Jesus, other than trust and confidence that he lived, he died, and rose again to save you from your sins and suffer the punishment that you deserve, anything less than this, and you will awake to find yourself cast from the presence of God where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But you will awake. So repent while it is still today. Cry out to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins. And he has said he will not turn anyone away. He will instead call you son or daughter. Well, notice what happens next. It says Jesus casts out the crowd. Jesus does a fair amount of casting out during his earthly ministry. Whether it's demons or money changers in the temple. In fact, the language used here is exactly the same. It's he cast them out. It's the same way he casts out a demon. It's the same language of casting out the money changers. 
Jesus sternly ushered them out of the house as he does the money changers in the temple, minus the whips and the overturning of tables and chairs. He was making sure that Jairus' house was still in order. And these unbelievers, those who laugh at the thought of life after the sun, are cast out. Look at what a fitting picture this is. It's a wonderful illusion, a sobering illusion, but a wonderful illusion to the casting out of unbelievers into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whereas, in the presence of Jesus in the kingdom, our weeping and our mourning when we awake are turned to laughing and dancing. For the one cast from the presence of God, laughter is turned to mourning and weeping and gnashing of teeth. But for the one who mourns now and awakes in the presence of God, their mourning is turned to laughter. Their weeping is turned to joy. As Mark notes, all that are left now are those who believe. Peter, James, John, Jairus, and his wife. These five persons then observe as Jesus tenderly reaches out, takes the girl by the hand, and raises her up. And though there were only five witnesses in the room, the news did not stay in the room. You can imagine the looks of disbelief, the open-mouthed shock of those who had been cast out of the house when they observed Jairus' daughter now walking about. This was miraculous. They knew she had died. They just didn't recognize the authority of the one to whom death is no more an obstacle than sleep. The one who will raise everyone. Verse 26 concludes saying that the news spread throughout all the land. Probably a reference to all of Galilee as the news spread of Jesus' power over death. Now the question to all of this, to these two miracles, to Jesus' power over death, to the interruption of that miracle by the healing of the hemorrhaging woman. The question is, for us today, this morning, so what? What are we to take away from a text like this? What are we to do with the reality of what Matthew presents, of the miracles, the observations, the response of the observers? What are we to do with this? Well, one is to remember that God is sovereignly at work. He set events and emotions 12 years earlier in preparation for the declaration of his power over death, his power over to heal, his ability to draw in those who are on the fringe of society to demonstrate the character of God, the compassion, the gentleness, the love of God. It's a reminder in our own lives that he is sovereignly at work. What does he say in Romans 8, 28? God causes all things to work together for good, but it doesn't end there. In fact, there's an important qualification for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All of it will be worked for his glory, but from our perspective, it is worked together for our good if we love him and are called according to his purpose. We know from Ephesians 2.10 that works and life and the experiences and all that we go through was prepared beforehand that we should walk accordingly. Secondly, remember that our perspective is extremely limited. For 12 
years this woman suffered. Yet God was preparing her for eternity. A mom and dad watched as their daughter slipped away from life on this earth, grieving, and yet God had a plan. Never assume that you have the full perspective on your suffering. That doesn't mean the suffering's not real, it is real. The pain is real. As believers, we should help, we should comfort, we should come alongside one another. And one of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways we can do this is by studying together and focusing on eternity. In Romans 8 again, Paul notes that he does not consider the sufferings of this present age, this present time, worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us in the age to come. To look for and to look forward to rest. Something that, again, all persons long for ever since Adam brought sin into the world. To remind ourselves of that, how awesome would it be to continually have that perspective on things? This is a careful line to walk because we don't want to discount the sufferings of others or just drop in to say, I know it hurts, but God's in control. It's all for your good. If you do that, you're not Christ-like at all. You're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. It's a true statement, but it's callous, and it fails to demonstrate the compassion, the care, the concern Jesus himself demonstrates. Seek to alleviate the suffering where possible, and let your love and care point to the truth of eternity and the hope of rest. Thirdly, live like you are dying and embrace eternity. Remind yourself that this world is not all there is, that you will die. It's not something as a believer to be afraid of. And in fact, we should live in light of that death, not because that's the end, but because that's the beginning of something new. I mean, first, do you know whether you will be raised to eternal joy and life, or will it be to eternal suffering? You need to consider that. Settle that first, and then make this life part of our preparation for the life to come. Live like it. Live like you know you are preparing for the life to come. And we do this by following the pattern of Jesus, living as his disciples, putting into practice all that we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount. Additionally, so look at how this text ended. Are you faithfully spreading the news abroad of the king and his kingdom? Faithfully proclaiming the work of Christ in your family, with your friends, with your co-workers, with your neighbors, in your community, and throughout the world. I think we can do a better job than those jeering crowds did. If we've experienced the transforming work of the gospel, then our lives will demonstrate in a new and unique way to those around us, or should demonstrate in a very unique way, Christ's power and his work and his authority. Matthew's presentation of Jesus as King and Messiah has reached or nearly reached its pinnacle as he's now raising persons from the dead. In fact, we'll notice a significant change in the message that Matthew presents. Still, the overall theme has not changed, but there's a change in chapter 10 that we're fast approaching. And so it's nearly reached its pinnacle as he's now raising persons from the dead. 
There should be no doubt left in the minds of those hearing or reading that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King who has come to prepare for his kingdom and to usher his people into rest. As we near the end of chapter 9, we see Matthew hammering home the authority and the identity of Jesus Christ. And what Matthew does is not only present the king, not only present his authority, but demonstrate the character and nature of a gracious ruler, this king we should all long to rule over us, who removes pain and suffering and sickness and disease and death and demonstrates such personal care. As we close this morning, I want us to turn to Psalm 8. It's just such a helpful reminder that as we are 2,000 plus years removed from these events, it can feel distant. Perhaps you're wondering, is, this the, is it still really the same? Well, several thousand years before Jesus came and demonstrated the character of God, we have David writing regarding the character of God in Psalm 8. And this is a fitting place to close as we observe the nearness of God, his care for us. Read along with me, if you will, in Psalm 8. For the choir director on the Gatith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's what we dare to proclaim. How majestic is his name in all the earth. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning from Matthew and from these events that took place. And Lord, as we look at it, may we just continue to refine our understanding of who Christ is and by extension, who God our Father is. Help us to long for the kingdom, to live in light of it, to Remind ourselves how limited our perspective is. Father, look, let us look for how we can come alongside to care and to carry one another's burdens while encouraging and exhorting one another to fix our eyes on eternity, to fix our eyes on heaven, to fix our eyes on being awakened from the sleep of this life. Thank you for the reminders we've had this morning. Father, may we be faithful to live according to what we have seen today. In your name, amen.